This podcast is brought to you by Bruner Communications, your best resource for public speaking, presentation, and storytelling skills. Visit LizBruner.com and take your skills to the next level. The person you are about to meet has been called a turnaround mastermind, an innovative businesswoman who is usually brought in when organizations are headed in the wrong direction, ready to give up. For more than 30 years, she's been saving companies, government agencies, and nonprofit foundations from ruin by solving their most complex problems that others hadn't or couldn't solve. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Live Your Best Life with Liz Bruner. I'm Liz, and I am so excited to introduce you to Lisa Gable. Lisa, it's great to have you on the show today. Thank you so much. Well, great. Well, I appreciate being on, and it's such a pleasure to speak with you. You are currently the CEO of an organization that was on the brink of failure before you stepped in, FARE, F-A-R-E, which is Food Allergy Research and Education, and it helps 32 million people who suffer from potentially life-threatening food allergies that make them sick. Take us through the turnaround. Well, basically, I was brought into FAIR, which was an organization that came about through the merger of two organizations back in the 2012 timeframe. And really what you had is a grassroots organization merging with the research organization. The economics of how the business was being run really weren't sustainable. And so I was asked to come in and build off of great work that had been done prior to my coming, but really remodel the entire organization so that it could grow and be sustainable with a focus on bringing therapies and diagnostics into market. So I was recruited in 2018. In the first 80 days, we had a 49% restructure. Ultimately, we had an 83% restructure. And we actually changed out the entire board. Mm. Uh, We had wonderful people that were on the board. And one of the goals of this was retaining everybody in the community while we went through sort of this uh, difficult transitions that have to be put into place when you restructure something. We actually set up two additional boards, our board of governors. And so uh, existing board members made a decision to go on to one or the other board of national ambassadors was advocacy related, uh, board of governors was fundraising related. And then we took the board down, actually split it almost in half and took it down to nine people and really focused on getting board members who could uh, had the financial wherewithal as well as the contacts to help rebuild the organization. And so we were able to raise $85 million in the first 20 months. And that gave us the runway to rebuild very quickly into a completely different model that had been put into place before. That's extraordinary. When you are brought in to a situation, how do you go about that course correction process when a company may be headed down the drain in the wrong direction? What happens? What's the process you go through? Well, I think one of the most important things that I recognize is There are wonderful people in any organization, and what you don't want to do is disparage the work that they had done before. And so you want to visualize the future. Uh, You want to figure out what exactly it is that you want to head towards. And then you break down the present. And what you're doing is you're evaluating what works, what doesn't work, what you keep, and what you let go. And then you create a path forward to your future, which is basically mapping out critical decisions and actions that you need to take. And it may be that your turnaround is something that takes you six months, but secondarily, sometimes it may take you two years. The goal is executing with confidence and diplomacy. You've got to speed up your willingness to partner with other people. You've got to recognize what's your core competency and then find partners that may do something very well 
that's an area that's actually going to enable you to grow. So partnership is critical to the entire process. And those four points that you just brought up are really very specific, and they are part of the powerful tools that are in your book called Turnaround, which is launching in the fall of 2021. And you have many tools in the book. Can you share with us some other tools, uh, such as your process engineering that you go through and how you reevaluate companies? What else is in the book? Well, one of the key things is data. I was trained by a man by the name of Craig Barrett, who became the CEO and chairman of the board of Intel Corporation. And what Craig taught me is you always have to speak with facts. And so collecting the data that's going to drive your decision-making is really important. One of the things is the math doesn't lie. Numbers don't lie. And Mm -hmm. so things do have to add up. What you look at are what we call the variables. You have to try and, and streamline things in a way that you are focused on your core competencies. You've got to focus. That is one of the most important things. And you've got to look at what's costing you. And costs can be direct costs to the organization, but it can also be the cost of your time. What's sucking up your time? That can be a process that you have that's really just not bringing you forward. It's taking you too long to get to where you need to be. It may be an attitude within the organization. It might be uh, the way in which the organization makes decisions is a little, a little too slow and you've got to move more quickly. Everything is built around a cost structure where you can analyze the actual expenses against revenue. Simultaneously, it's looking at all the moving parts and trying to eliminate as many moving parts as possible and systematize. And that's what great manufacturing uh, companies are built on. Mm. That's how Intel Corporation really built itself originally was by streamlining and standardizing across all of its chip manufacturing sites. Mm. Well, Turnaround Mastermind is not the only title Lisa holds. She has had a front row seat at significant inflection points in recent history. The first female U.S. Commissioner General to the 2005 World Expo, a U.S. delegate to the U.N.'s Commission on the Status of Women, and the Senior Vice President for Global Public Policy at PepsiCo. Lisa has also served four U.S. presidents and two governors. Lisa, this relationship with politics started pretty young. At the age of 19, you were the youngest appointee in the Reagan administration. What did you do and where did this interest in politics come from? Well, my father had always had a side interest in the political realm, and there were different aspects of this business that exposed me politically to individuals who were in elected office at a very young age, as well as individuals that we would define as key influencers in the policy sector. So I made a deal with my dad when I was 18. I said, you know, if you help me get my first internship, I'll get the next two. And so he did that. He helped me get my first set of internships. I ended up with three internships in Washington. I started college at a fairly young age. And through that opportunity, I discovered that there was one position in the Reagan administration. It was called student liaison officer. And that was an individual uh, who was currently in college uh, to serve in the Department of Education. The Reagan administration was basically privatizing student loans. I was putting myself through college, uh, you know, paying my own way through college, ended up paying my way through graduate school, also using scholarships. And so I was brought in to explain all the opportunities for identifying funding to help supplement the needs that you had, that deficit you have as a student who is looking for money to pay for college but not necessarily doing it through a federally funded process. It was a wonderful experience. I I was able to go speak to multiple different student organizations, build my first partnerships to help communicate information out so that people understood 
uh, where the money was shifting, that, that the money would still be available. It was still there. It just wasn't going to be distributed in the way it had been distributed before. And even more fun, I, I was sent as uh, one of the rising leaders on a trip to Israel with uh, three Democrats and three Republicans. <laughs> and so that was my first bipartisan effort was actually going to Israel at the age of 19. And I had amazing experiences meeting with policy leaders there. I then later ended up working at the Pentagon and at the White House during the Reagan years. I'm curious, growing up in Virginia and your father involved in politics, what did you want to be as a child when you grew up? Do you remember? Oh, yes. So uh, my master's degree is in national security studies, which basically I studied military weapon systems. And where that came from (laughs) is that I went and visited battlefields with my dad. I was fascinated by history. Uh, It was before TiVo. Younger people don't understand that we actually used to have to watch television to see the show we wanted to. And on Sunday afternoons after church, my dad and I would watch old war movies. And my bedroom was actually a Civil War, a Revolutionary War, cannons and rifles, decorations. <laughs> and the thing is, I, I weigh like, you know, about 100 pounds and I had white go-go boots and I was very prissy. And it was just always such a disconnect for my parents that I was obsessed with military strategy. But it is an area that I have stayed involved with as you had the beginning of dual-use technologies, technologies that had computer like computers and semiconductors that had military use and civilian use, I later pivoted to the civilian side. And that's actually where I grew my career is in consumer electronics. But what people don't remember is, you know, your iPhone was actually the equivalent of a supercomputer uh, back in the days when I got started at the Pentagon. Yeah, they were a lot larger though, right? <laughs> they were entire rooms. And yes. In fact, I worked on the first sale to India I remember they had huge air conditioners and military people in these huge rooms. I mean, it was really stunning when you realize how far we've come. Exactly. You described your career path as one that zigged and zagged to the top. And just what we've heard, you did a little zigging and zagging. And you were at the top. But then your husband is diagnosed with a malignant tumor and your life changes dramatically. What happened? In uh, 1998, uh, we were in the process of adopting a child. My husband really started having, he was at Apple as an executive. Steve Jobs had come in and my husband was reporting to Steve and he was really having some physical things that uh, we were trying to figure out. He ultimately left Apple and went to do a startup. And on the day the money, the VC money, passed from the the venture capitalist into his startup, he was on the operating table at Stanford having a massive malignant tumor taken out of his chest, which had actually wrapped itself against the aorta. They had all these doctors in there. Ultimately, they found out that he had two autoimmune diseases and this reoccurring malignant thymoma is, is what the nature of the cancer was. It's very rare. 5,000 people a year have a, have a thymoma. 40 to 50 of those have a malignant thymoma. Mm. We were very fortunate with the doctors that we had, but he had seven operations in basically about a two-year period of time because things went wrong in the surgery. The tumor was so massive. My husband was one of the prime evangelists for Apple, and that was his goal with the startup. Mm. Out of the three partners, he was the one that was going to be speaking, and they actually cut the nerve to his vocal cords, and he couldn't speak for the first nine months. He ultimately ended up selling the company, but did all of that while he was going through this. So he's an amazing human being. We had a newly adopted daughter. I had a, a company of my own. And, uh, and that's when I realized that I had to zig and zag. 
When my husband got through all of those operations, we made a decision. We wanted to move out of California, be closer to our families in Virginia because I needed a support system and our daughter needed stability, a family around her who loved her if his health was going to be challenging. And so my zigging and zagging really focused on for the period of her elementary school and while he was at his most sick, uh, that I had to identify ways that I could be publicly positioned, have leadership positions, but not have to do it full time. And that's when I started going on not-for-profit boards, company boards, uh, startup boards. And the nice thing with board positions in a lot of public speaking is that you can schedule it. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't a full-time job, but it allowed me to keep my profile high. I was writing articles and things that I could spend more time with my family and that I could re-enter into the workplace at the level where I left off. And it sounds like because of all of that, you and your husband, your family, you made the decision to really live a life of purpose. And I know that helping people is one of your passions, and so too is mentorship. And you have said, quote, the single most important trait possessed by any successful entrepreneurial woman is to mentor. Who were your mentors and what was the best advice they gave you? Well, I had a couple of mentors. One were Craig and Barbara Barrett, and you'll see them featured in the book. Craig bringing me, hiring me as I was leaving the White House. But the way I got to meet him is through his wife, Barbara, who later during the last few years, she was Secretary of the Air Force and she was a U.S. ambassador. Barbara and I met when I recruited her to a position in the Reagan administration and my boss was two hours late. And so we sat downstairs. I was in graduate school at nighttime working at the White House in the daytime. And you know, two hours, somebody's asking you a lot of questions. You run out of things to talk about. <laughs> and she took a special interest in me. And what she would do is help me move on to boards uh, when she was going off of boards. And so during that zigzagging period, Barbara is really the person who helped me do that zigzagging. She goes, okay, I'm going off the sport. Do you want to go on to it? I'm going off that board. And then there were a couple other people, Elaine Chow, who also I had met at the Reagan White House, has always been just an incredible supporter of me. She has had two cabinet positions. Uh, Marsha Evans, she goes by Marty Evans, uh, was one of the first two-star female admirals. Uh, she's another person that I've called on whenever I've run into complex situations. And so those women, having them, uh, when I was going through the hard times to brainstorm with and figure out how I was going to do things, as I'm doing turnarounds, I've, I've actually you know, gone to them and asked them for their opinions. I have this situation. I have that situation. And so I try to do that with others. And I have people that I've been mentoring now. Uh, some of them, it's really funny. I I can remember when I was in Japan and they worked for me and they were a 22-year-old college student and now they're 40. <laughs> so you forget that, they, that your mentees get older and so you see Christmas <laughs> cards with their kids' pictures because those kids grow and that's sort of a reaffirming how old you're getting. Uh, but I believe very much in not just mentoring someone, but I had people who've been part of my life going back to 1987. Wow. And I've tried to maintain that type of relationship with a lot of young women. Uh, and now I also really focus on uh, my daughter's 22, uh, kids in her age bracket who are diverse, who either may be LGBTQ, might be African-American. How can I help them? And that's just a personal commitment that I have is to ensure that they have the same opportunities that my daughter had. And one piece of advice that maybe still rings true to you today? Is that you really need to help other people up the ladder. I don't have sharp elbows. It's actually been detrimental to me in some cases. You're building a team. 
Your life is a personal team. There's people, they're my team members. They've been my team members. I can rely on them. Some people have worked for me three times now. Uh, But you have to think about people as your team and you have to help them up the ladder. And when you help each other up the ladder, you're very powerful as a group. Mm -hmm. You're coming up this summer in June with your three-year anniversary at FAIR and nearly half of your time there, besides turning the organization around, you've had to deal with this worldwide pandemic. And one of the things that I loved learning about how you handled all of this was how you handled your employees' families. And you just a moment ago talked about teams and being a member of a team. And I learned that you treated those families as members of the team. What do you mean by that? What did you do? Well, the first thing we did is we decided to have a virtual arts and crafts show. For two weeks, the children of our employees would send me pictures every night. They could send a picture of an art and craft that they made. Some of them made videos. Some of them sang songs. And if it was a picture, my husband and I would literally print it out on our computer at nighttime, and we would hang it on my refrigerator. And then I'd take a picture of their picture hanging on my refrigerator. And then we would compile it all into a PowerPoint and send it out to everybody every night with some inspirational message. And what that did is allowed the children to be part of the team, not just showing up on Zoom. They do come on Zoom. And we all know them, right? Because we, re- we remember that that's so-and-so and she was the singer. They have been able to come in and out of our meetings. We know what their interests are. They really enjoyed, they loved having that uh, PowerPoint go out every night with a little, a little summary as to what it was they did and their picture and seeing a copy of their picture on my on my um, refrigerator, and we've tried to continue to do things throughout the process, whether it was during the holidays when we had the crazy sweater competition, kids were joining us off and on. You know, they're there. They're part of the team, and we don't want people to feel stressed that their children are there. Mm. You know, we recognize that they are the most important asset that they have, and jobs are temporary. Institutions are are managed, but your family is important, and it's important to us. Mm. Wonderful. Ironically, the tagline for FAIR is live your best life, (laughs) which is, of course, what this show is all about. How are you, Lisa Gable, living your best life? I am just enjoying every opportunity that is put in front of me. I am a very positive person. I always tend to see an opportunity and a challenge. It's something I learned from my dad. He always said that the biggest stumbling blocks ended up being his largest opportunities. Mm. And I get great joy from helping people. In fact, a little little side note is that if I have a bad day or somebody's not nice to me, I make sure I do one thing for another person that night. Because I always know about people looking for adopts. And there's that positive reinforcement of, doing a positive action after you've had a bad day or after somebody said something that wasn't very kind to take your energy and instead go, you know what? I remember that so-and-so son's looking for a job. I seem to remember there's somebody I can connect him to mm-hmm. or somebody else is looking for recommendations on something that has to do with their child's health. I, I just always look for an opportunity to end the day on a positive note and to enjoy my life. And I've had amazing opportunities and I thank God every day were the opportunities that he's given me, but also the challenges that have helped me build the resilience that's gotten me through things like turnaround. Is there one experience that you lean on from time to time for yourself, an experience that you went through? I wouldn't say an experience I went through. What I would say is that I believe everything happens for a reason. And so I remember back to when something occurred and then 
the positivity that came out of it. It may not have come out of it for two years, but you learn something at every single stumbling block. I mean, that's really what my dad was trying to get me to understand. And once I got it, what I could recognize is that out of every stumbling block, it sets a domino effect. If you are focused on visualizing your future, can be a positive one. And even with my husband's illness, we have helped so many families. He has 16 doctors that he sees. So we know lots of doctors. We've been able to help so many families through very serious illnesses because we have contacts, we have answers, we've gone through it, we can be helpful. That's more of the direction that I I always like to take the conversation and see what it is that we can build off of something that I went through and help somebody else. And how is your husband, if I may ask? How's he doing today? He is doing just fine. He is a CEO of a quantum computing startup. He, too, has zigged and zagged because, you know, there have been time periods where he was so ill that he couldn't work, but he loves to learn. He was a consumer electronics guy, a top executive at Apple. His startup was one of the first internet radios that was covered on Rolling Stone magazine, and now he's doing quantum computing. He's doing just great. COVID has actually given him an opportunity to rest, so he hasn't had to travel as much, uh, but he's doing fine. You guys are a power couple. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I'm glad to We're hear resilient. that. We're resilient. Resilient. That is a good word. We all need to be resilient after the time that we've had to deal with this pandemic. Lisa's book, Turnaround, is available for pre-sale. Just go to turnaroundbook.com. Again, that's turnaroundbook.com. It's going to give you the leadership tools that you need to turn your ship around and chart a course to success. Lisa, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your story. Well, thank you so much for having me. I love sharing it and hopefully it helps somebody else. And that is certainly the goal of Live Your Best Life with Liz Bruner, to be able to share stories like yours of people who have risen above, who've had to zig and zag, and who are now taking all of those experiences and helping other people as well. And thank all of you for tuning in today. May the stories that you hear truly inspire you to live your best life. Until next time, be well. This podcast is brought to you in part by Fast Twitch Media, helping people tell their stories and giving them worldwide reach. The future is in the cloud and Fast Twitch Media can take you there. Be your best digital self. Check out fasttwitchmedia.space.